Hello and welcome to the latest episode of our podcast series. My name is Ian Kennelly and I am Historian in Residence with Westmead County Council. Today's episode is related to a new online exhibition, Everest1921.com, created by myself, which commemorates the 1921 reconnaissance mission to Mount Everest, led by Charles Howard Bury, who grew up in Charleville Castle in County Offaly, and who spent much of his life, most of his life indeed, at Belvedere House and Gardens in County Westmead, not far from Mullingar. My guest today is Frank Nugent, historian and renowned mountaineer who was deputy leader of the Irish expedition to Mount Everest in 1993, in which Dawson Stelfox reached the summit of the world's highest mountain. Now, Frank has written uh, many works and, and covered many aspects of mountaineering history, including the story of Charles Howard Bury and the 1921 reconnaissance mission, and he proves to be an excellent guide to the subject. Uh, we won't be talking about Howard Bury's life outside of the expedition. That is well covered in the online exhibition, everest1921.com. Today we'll be sticking with the reconnaissance mission itself, how it came about, uh, what it entailed and what it achieved. So, Frank, we're looking at the situation in 1921 and the decades beforehand. And at this time, global exploration is bound up in the rivalry between the great powers. And the British have been beaten to both poles, north and south, and and now exploration groups in Britain, such as the Royal Geographical Society and the Alpine Club, they're looking for new opportunities and, and what they call the third pole. Can you explain? Well, I think you have to understand that the British had been really highly involved with uh, trying to get to the boat poles first. They, they had led, had many expeditions and, you know, uh, uh, they, they certainly taught that Captain Scott would, would be first to reach the, 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 the South Pole. And of course, he was beaten there by Roel Amundsen by about a month. And, uh, uh, yeah, and Scott had already been in receipt of a Founders Medal from the Royal Geographical Society. So, uh, when it, when it was reported, was a couple of reports of a couple of different Americans having reached the North Pole. So, uh, as, Everest was within um, uh, India, was sort of within British, very close to British territories. They thought that they would have a great, that, that they actually identified Everest as a the sort of third pole. And they, they, they put a lot of uh, effort into trying to become the first to reach the summit of Everest. But of course, the big job they had, first of all, they had to do was find out how to get to the base. So, but they had, they had the upper hand in the sense that, um, they, they had mapped India and they had identified, uh, you know, all of the, the chain of the Himalaya and they had, you know, um, they were part of the, the, the Indian survey. They essentially reported back to the Royal Geographical Society, who incidentally, they, they had the, the cheat to name Everest after one of their own instead of usually apportioning the name to a local, whatever the local name for a peak was. So there was a, you know, there was a lot of vested interest in the British uh, in pursuit of trying to make a first ascent of Everest. And this is where Charles Howard Bury enters the scene. He had a particularly strong background in exploration. And is that how he came to lead the expedition in 1921? Yeah. Yeah, because when when he when he he went through, um, he, he went to Eton and on to Sandhurst, and then he he was he commissioned out of Sandhurst a captain, and he was assigned to uh, the Indian Rifles, and he spent his early army years 
in India. And as any time he took leave or furlough out of the, the army, he went traveling uh, up into um, one stage to Tibet, another stage he went to the Karakoram, and he went on various expeditions to different parts. And then when he, when he left the army, he went to Hindu Kush. So he, he, and he, he went to, um, the Silk Road, Tian Shan. And so he had, like, yeah, and he had a great interest in everything, uh, Asian, every, every, all the Eastern religions and all of that, and that culture. And of course, he was very into the languages. So he was an expert, if you like, in that part of the world. He had developed that expertise. And he was, you know, and if you like, he, through writing, through writing to the RGS, uh, he made it, made it obvious to him that he was prepared to do reconnaissance work at his own cost, you know. So that was an invaluable, somebody with his abilities and experience. He knew the military side as well as the, you know, the mount, the, the exploration side. And then he had the languages, you know. And obviously he, you know, he had come through the war and he, he had been, he'd fought in all the great battles on the Western Front. And, you know, he'd come through. Uh, you know, he was decorated. He was an obvious lead, leader of men, you know, and a very competent, capable, you know, fellow who was willing and able. I think his willingness and his ability with those two things together make anybody very, very suitable for a task like that. Okay, so the situation with regard to Mount Everest at this time is that very little is known about the mountain, apart from its place as the world's highest peak. It is unmapped and so is the whole region around the mountain. Tibet uh, is an independent country. It had recently expelled Chinese forces. It had uh, been attacked by the British Empire in 1903 and 1904, uh, primarily 1904, but it had now had a working relationship uh, with the British Empire and with the British government in India. And it was through that that the expedition was given uh, permission to enter Tibet. But Frank, could you explain the goals of the what was called the reconnaissance mission to Mount Everest. Yeah, well, the the big thing was the, the key thing was was the finding the base of the mountain and finding the, the key access route up. But they had set themselves the subtasks of mapping Sikkim and resurveying parts of Sikkim that hadn't been mapped, and they also wanted a, a map of. Uh, up to Tibet, up to the base of Everest, in, you know, the, so they wanted an accurate map of that. So they immediately, like before even the, the main expedition party set out, the party to map Sikkim left uh, a couple of weeks previous. And then it was a question of actually having, so for a survey team, um, it's generally a surveyor plus a couple of assistants. And it's a lot of heavy gear that has to be, and you have to climb to the top of high of peaks and they got to find uh, places where they could uh, plant their theodolites and spot all the high points in, in the distance, etc. All of that. So they, they were they had already had experienced um, mappers from the Indian survey. So then they had to basically equip them with food and mules and whatever. So they, one team set out to do that. Then a second team set out to to map the rest of Sikkim and the Tibet. And then the third. The, the, the most important map then was the one-inch map of the uh, Im immediate environs of Everest, which would be the, the mountains, the mountain chain itself. And uh, there were two two main uh, people for that. 
And of course, Wheeler and uh, um, Moore's head, they, 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 they were the main um, people to do that. So the situation is it's mid-May 1921. They're in Darjeeling in Sikkim in northern India and the expedition is about to begin. Could you chart that journey first as they move from India into Tibet and towards Everest? The expedition consisted of uh, surveyors and climbers, and they all they all they rendezvoused in Darjeeling. They met, and Howard Bury had organised a hundred mules and uh, muleteers, and he'd also uh, organised about thirty uh, boatiers, uh, what we now call Sherpas. But uh, the, the, uh, he he had got advice from the officer in uh, Bell in Tibet, that if he was going to hire locals to hire these um, uh, Sherpas from um, Nepal. So he, he organized, but they, they all met at Darjeeling and then they proceeded to work their way through Sikkim. Uh, you have to go over a high pass, the Jelly Pass, and uh, it's over 14,000 feet. So that's a huge, and then you've got to drop about 5,000 feet and then through, you know, d- uh, dense forestry and um, you know, really uh, beautiful um, countryside. Uh, and uh, because Howard Bury was a botanist, he, he really enjoyed all this and his, his notes and his, his, uh, his uh, diaries from all that, his reports back, illustrate just how, how much he was at home doing all that. But uh, it was hard work. The, don- the, the mules they got from um, the uh, British Army in India were useless. So he spent half of the journey, every village he went to, um, hiring local mules, replacing the mules they got. So he, he did an awful job. Now, it turned out that uh, Callis, who was one of the very experienced climbers, um, he got sick. He had just come from climbing other mountains and he hadn't had time to rest and recover. And he suffered very severely from altitude sickness and he ended up being carried from camp to camp and eventually, he actually died just as they were, uh, I suppose, reaching the borders with Tibet. And uh, they had to bury him uh, there. So, and also their other very senior climber, um, uh, a Scotsman, Rayborn, he was also sick and they had to send him back to rehabilitate for a few weeks to get his, you know, he, he was suffering from altitude. So it, it didn't look great at the start. Okay, so you have, they're in Tibet and they're at Mount Everest and you have Wheeler and Morshead, they're the mapping team. Howard Bury is overseeing uh, and directing the whole expedition. You have the climbing team. Uh, that was originally four members, but Rayburn had to return through illness to Sikkim in India. And uh, Kellis, uh, of course, he died, as you explained, en route. So that leaves Mallory... Uh, George Leigh Mallory, who would become famous in 1924 for his death on the mountain and all the speculation about whether he reached the top or not, and along with Andrew Irvine. And then uh, alongside Mallory in 1921, you have uh, Guy Bullock and they're the climbing team. But I don't think they had much experience of going above 5,000 metres. Is that the case? People like Mallory, they, when they went to the Alps, the highest altitude they would climb in the absolute would be Mont Blanc. So they were used to being able to climb up to, say, 4,800. So 5,000 metres was, they knew that you could climb up to that. But when you went over 5,000, because 
The Everest Base Camp is at the height of, it, it's around 5,000 metres. So that's sort of, a, you know, um, the, more or less the top of Mont Blanc. But when, when you try to climb higher, uh, you're on 50% um, less oxygen than you would be at sea level. So uh, it, obviously your, your mind doesn't, your brain doesn't work that well. Everything is slower. Uh, you, you get cold. And it wasn't known for sure if you could actually survive at that sort of altitude. So there was all sorts of experiments going on. And a, a lot of scientists reckoned that you needed supplementary oxygen in order to, to safely climb it. And, that. and indeed, uh, Callas on the first expedition, he was an expert in this and he was experimenting in um, oxygen systems and kits for climbing in the Himalayas. So there, there was a good bit of knowledge about it. But uh, nowadays, uh, you know, it, it, it's very, very, very dangerous for someone to, to be any more than, say, 24 hours over um, uh, 8,000 metres. And my own experience of being up on mountains, I noticed when I, I've been over 8,000 metres a couple of times, and I noticed that if you, if you take off the oxygen mask, the colours diminish. You don't think as quick. You move slowly, because, basically because you're, there's less oxygen to your brain and everything just seems to happen slower. And, uh, you know, the sharpness is, 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 things go out of focus a bit. And so you don't, you don't perform, you know. So in order to climb Everest without oxygen, you, you really would want to have been living and operating at, at high, at high level to get yourself acclimatized to be able to operate. So they are working at over 5,000, often well over 6,000 metres, camped at those altitudes and they have to deal with often very hazardous weather conditions, cold, snow, ice, high winds, wind chill. What kind of clothing did they have to survive and to combat those conditions? If, if you look at a photograph of the 1921 uh, expedition, you see they're all dressed in tweeds and whatever. Indeed, uh, I think it was George Bernard Shaw, when he saw the picture, he thought it was like a picnic in Connemara rather than on the side of Everest. So uh, so the, the gear, now the only thing about that is the gear, it actually that sort of clothing is very, actually works very well. This is the warmest clothing you could wear. Now what they didn't have was the breathable fabrics that we would have nowadays. But what they did have was the best of the time. And like they'd learned a lot from the guys who were uh, went to the poles, and what they, the windproof anorak was really the the thing they didn't have as as, as well as they might. And um, they they still were very much into the tweeds. Well, it's good to hear that they were suitably dressed for the occasion, and they needed to be obviously given the conditions in which they were working. And around the twentieth of September, they reached an area called the North Col, uh, which turned out to be vital to the. Uh, outcome of the mission. Can you explain the significance of that in terms of mountaineering, in terms of reaching the summit of Mount Everest and in terms of, of what they were actually trying to achieve? Well, what, what happened was they were trying to find uh, a, a route. But if you look from a distance, you could see that the ridge that was coming down, the northeast ridge, looked like the, the, a line that was cl very climbable from a distance. And the way to get onto it, there's one mountain called Changsi, it was, they called it the North Peak of Everest. So between Changsi and, the, and that Northeast Ridge is a call, like a saddle on the mountain. And that is now known as the North Call, 
or in Tibetan is the Chang La. Getting onto the Chang La was the key. But when they got up, uh, got up onto it, uh, when they, as soon as they actually reached the call, they were blown out of it with gales and winds and, and the weather was totally unfavourable. So they weren't able to go any much higher than that. Now, Mallory would have loved to have gone up, further up the ridge, but the weather just didn't allow them. But they did actually reach the call and they did, they did uh, very, very clearly that was a very viable route. Okay, so we're just going to take a moment to play a clip from our online exhibition, Everest1921.com. It is a reading by the actor John McGlynn of George Lay Mallory's account of being on the North Call in 1921. And it comes from the official narrative of the expedition, which was published the following year. But what lay ahead of us? My eyes had often strayed as we came up to the rounded edge above the call and the final rocks below the northeast red. If ever we had doubted whether the arete were accessible, it was impossible to doubt any longer. For a long way up those easy rock and snow slopes was neither danger nor difficulty. But at present there was wind. Even where we stood under the lee of a little ice cliff, it came in fierce gusts at frequent intervals. Blowing up the powdery snow in a suffocating tourbillon. On the call beyond it was blowing a gale, and higher was a more fearful sight. The powdery fresh snow on the great face of Everest was being swept along in unbroken spindrift, and the very ridge where our route lay was marked out to receive its unmitigated fury. We could see the blown snow deflected upwards for a moment where the wind met the ridge, only to rush violently down in a frightful blizzard on the leeward side. To see, in fact, was enough. The wind had settled the question. It would have been folly to go on. Nevertheless, some little discussion took place as to what might be possible, and we struggled a few steps further to put the matter to the test. For a few moments, we exposed ourselves on the call to feel the full strength of the blast, then struggled back to shelter. Okay, so this attempt in the North Call marks the culmination of the expedition, even though they continue to map for many weeks thereafter. They've fulfilled their primary goal of finding a route to the summit of Everest. But I just want to jump forward briefly and discuss your own experiences, Frank, because you've been on the North Call many times and you could give lives, listeners uh, an example of, of what it's like to be there. Well, we are going from the top of the Rongbuk Glacier is about 20,000 feet, you know. So it's a, roughly speaking a 3,000 foot climb onto the North Call, you know. And that's uh, the first time I did it. I did it from the main Rongbuk Glacier with Phil Thomas. And it was about a six-hour climb. But we were carrying, you got to remember, it was sort of soft, heavy snow, uh, carrying everything that you needed, rope, uh, climbing gear, uh, sleeping, you know, sleeping bags, uh, mattresses, all that, and food, uh, you know, on a tent. So, you know, it's heavy carry for just two people. And we, we got ourselves onto the, onto the call. And then, of course, it snowed all night and the next day. And so we ended up descending down the other side, which was the side which, um, which Mallory and, and uh, um, Wheeler took back in 1920 and which became the way. But we descended, first, my first time I descended down that, the first time I, I went down that way. And uh, in 87, and then the, I came back a week later and climbed it again from the main Rongbuk Glacier. But on the Everest expedition, I, I climbed onto the Narcol, I think it was six times from um, the top of that glacier. 
And that was part of toing and froing until we got the opportunity to go for the summit. And eventually from there, myself and Dawson got the camps two and three and then had a, an assault on, on, on Everest on the, um, the 27th of May in 1993. Uh, and uh, I got up on to the second step, to the foot of the second step. And from there, I'd run out of boxing, but Dawson managed to uh, get from there to the summit and we, we made the first Irish descent of Everest. So I'm very familiar with the North Call. <laughs> Fair enough. It was like a second home to you at that stage. But I suppose, Frank, now we, we need to move off the North Call. It's nearing the end of the expedition. And can you explain the reconnaissance team's successes and their achievements? The expedition was absolutely 100% successful. They did everything they went out, we were sent out to do. The map was an astonishing piece of work. Howard Bury and Wheeler did a huge amount of work. When the expedition proper was finished, Howard Bury went, walked into Makalu with Wheeler and they took additional photographs and they spent extra days up there just to complete the circle to get pictures of the Kangshung Glacier. And, uh, and they went right up to Fort Hoyas Mountain, the word Makalu, they went right up into the base of that. Um, they also, in the process, they had discovered the, the worthiness of the, the Sherpa. As all subsequent expeditions have used the uh, Nepali Sherpa as uh, um, people who, who live in the Solo Kumbu area in Nepal, to use those as, as mountain uh, guides. They, they completed the maps of Sikkim and the approach map. Uh, so all subsequent expeditions have used that approach route in. Wheeler found a, a way from the Rongbuk Monastery uh, up the Rongbuk Glacier and then uh, turning left into the East Rongbuk Glacier. Uh, the expedition came over the Lark Pass, but uh, his, his research found a, a better way to get to the same place. And so all subsequent expeditions used that. They, yeah, they did a complete appraisal of the plant life and, uh, you know, their their reports on flora and fauna were outstanding. Of course, while the expedition was ongoing, newspapers all over the world in Ireland, Britain, uh, Europe, uh, United States, I've seen Australian newspapers uh, following the expedition, they all kept up to date with what was happening. And that meant that when Howard Bury and his team arrived back in Europe, they found that they were international celebrities. And uh, Howard Bury ended up getting uh, a special award uh, from the Royal Geographical Society, the Founders Medal, which is handed out once a year. Could you explain uh, the significance of that to us, Frank? Well, the Founders Medal, if you look at, at the, who the other recipients of it were, you know, like Roel Amundsen, the, the, the Norwegian who who, who reached the, the South Pole, the, the RGS awarded it to him. They had previously awarded it to um, Captain Scott on a previous, on one of his earlier expeditions. Now, for uh, because uh, I suppose Shackleton was was uh, was one of Scott's rivals. They never actually awarded the Founders Medal to because uh, I suppose the people that were promoting Scott would have been you know would have seen Shackleton as a rival. So for, remarkably, Shackleton never received it. But also remarkably, it's it's Shackleton's statue that stands outside the RGS with Livingston at the front and Shackleton at the back. So you know you, you can sort of see, but. You also had uh, David Livingston received it, and uh, we uh, Irish recipients would have included uh, Leopold McClintock, who discovered 
what happened to the Franklin expedition. And we had, uh, you know, uh, Robert McClure from Wexford, who made the first um, Northwest Passage uh, coming through from um, the Bering Strait and making his way overland on, on various ships. He made his way back into the Atlantic. Uh, he, he actually was awarded it for, for that journey. So, uh, you know, to be listed with with those sort of people, uh, was, you know, that, that's who you're being listed with. And indeed, Edmund Hillary, when he made the first ascent of Everest, uh, he was awarded the Founders Medal as well. If you look at Tor Haderdahl got it for, uh, you know, these are, the, these are names of, you know. So in his time, Howard Bury was considered, uh, you know, well up there. Frank, I'd like to thank you for appearing on the latest episode of our podcast series. There'll be more episodes in forthcoming weeks. Again, this uh, episode is related to our online exhibition created by myself on behalf of Belvedere House and Gardens and Westmead County Council. It's at everest1921.com. That's www.everest1921.com. It's got many photos from Tibet in 1921. Howard Bury was a superb photographer, as well as photos from his 1913 expedition to the Tian Shan Mountains, which was an incredible trip in its own right. And many of these are stored in Mullingar Public Library. So that link again, everest1921.com. Thank you.